Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rethink Retail podcast. I am your host, Lisa Amlani, principal and co-founder of Retail Strategy Group, The Merchant Life, and a Rethink Retail influencer. Today, I'm speaking with my guest, Vanessa Barboni-Halleck. Vanessa is the founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow, a sustainable luxury fashion brand that provides complete tech-enabled supply chain transparency and embedded resale. Prior to founding Another Tomorrow, Vanessa served as a managing director at Morgan Stanley. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. Such a pleasure to be here. Can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about your professional journey to founding Another Tomorrow and what motivated you to launch the company? You know, I think every founder really brings kind of the sum total of their life experience to their work. And I think uh, founding Another Tomorrow in, in a funny way is almost kind of a homecoming. Um, I grew up in a very kind of hippie, techie, uh, creative background um, in the Midwest in college towns. And I think I was always really inspired by this idea of problem solving at the intersection of disciplines. Um, and, and fashion is so incredibly interdisciplinary. But in the interim, I you know initially went to Berkeley. I thought I was going to be an architect. I ended up in banking very much by accident. Um, started out as actually an options trader in foreign exchange, uh, which was pretty wild um, coming from the Midwest and thinking that banks were tellers. I didn't know that job was a thing. Ultimately, I found my way into emerging markets, uh, which again kind of scratched that interdisciplinary itch. And um, that was really my first taste of, I would say, entrepreneurship. So I got to really focus on rebuilding some very client-centric businesses post-financial crisis, which um, I really, really loved. I also took a brief interlude to go do a degree in um, energy and environmental policy. So that was kind of a consistent through line. And long story short, in 2017, I thought it was about time for me to really start putting my time and energy uh, in a direction that I felt very passionately was going to be relevant for the future that the world needed to take. Um, and I never imagined in a million years that that would be in fashion. Uh, I thought I was going to stay within finance. I took a sabbatical um, ostensibly to move from emerging markets into ESG and really build out those businesses. But, you know, sabbatical is a beautiful thing. And I had this incredible opportunity to really just be curious again for the first time in, you know, at least 15 years. And curious I was. And I really accidentally fell down the rabbit hole of how incredibly impactful the apparel industry is. Um, and, you know, despite having followed ESG and sustainability for some time, I was just, I was floored by my own lack of knowledge by the magnitude of the problem, uh, by the complexity of the problem, um, and what I really perceived to be a gulf in leadership outside of the, you know, the outdoor space. And so I really wanted to, you know, help model a different vision for fashion. And so spent spent a bunch of time kind of like going through the graveyard of ideas. You know, what had not worked. And the through line was really that there were incredible companies that came to market, both B2C and, and B2B that were so well-intentioned, but fundamentally were relying on the end customer, whether that was consumer or business, to know more than they knew, uh, care more than they cared. And so they didn't tend to be very scalable solutions. And oftentimes there was also, I think, a, an approach, and I appreciate why this is the case, given the complexity, to just one slice of the problem, right? So it was not unusual to see businesses that were just solving for sourcing, 
but they weren't solving for the challenging intersection of supply and demand for circularity. And so we really wanted to take a systemic approach. And so I guess the early stages were fairly academic, frankly. You know, I brought in a couple of people who are incredible experts in the field to really help me understand how you would devise a really scientifically um, and ethically rigorous framework for sourcing. Uh, which was fantastic. And we did a bunch of market research to really understand where the white space was in the conventional market, because I believe really passionately that we needed to be solving a problem that the customer intuitively felt that they had, as opposed to saying, hey, you have this problem that you didn't know about, and we're going to solve it for you. And so what we found was there was just this amazing white space in kind of the accessible luxury arena. And that was because you had two unhappy customer groups. You had uh, a luxury customer who had this sort of intuitive sense that they were overpaying for what they were getting, uh, wanting a new intersection of price and quality. And then equally, you had this more contemporary aspirational customer that was really looking to trade up in quality, uh, but couldn't quite go like Ghani to Gucci, let's say. And so those two desires kind of met in this beautiful middle of like accessible luxury. So that was the, the white space into which we built the brand. What was super interesting as well is that those same two customer groups were also really dissatisfied by re-commerce. They were really frustrated, um, you know, principally by third-party re-commerce, the lack of transparency, what pr- things were selling for, uh, and then also, you know, the buyer experience was not a very happy one um, either in terms of that user experience. So we thought, okay, we can also build an in-house re-commerce platform into this. So with that accessible luxury and in-house re-commerce approach uh, really solidified as the white space, we then set out to build the brand in a holistically sustainable way, taking you know farm to table to farm to closet in terms of sourcing. Um, and then really, I think one of the most important decisions we've made, uh, we decided to digitize everything from the get-go. So we partnered with Digimark, which was then called Everything, Uh, to ensure that every single item had its own unique digital ID. So this idea of kind of a digital twin has been really intuitive to us as a business. And that's created this incredible architecture off of which we can really build and innovate in a very flexible way. So uh, that all kicked off in 2018. We launched at the end of January in 2020, six weeks before COVID. So not exactly in the business plan, but it's been pretty incredible ever since. Well, you're definitely speaking my language when you're talking about digital product creation and digital twins and just being more flexible when you're going to market. Now we actually met, well, we can't, we can't figure it out, but either last year or the year before in Chicago at the retail innovation conference. And I was so inspired by hearing you speak about sustainability and transparency on stage that I actually um, encouraged you to send someone to PI Apparel so that I could talk to your VP of Supply Chain, Tara St. James, about sustainability and transparency on stage. Now, how does Another Tomorrow define a transparent supply chain? So Another Tomorrow, we really believe in beginning where the impact starts, which is really at the raw material level. I mean, we forget that clothing, unless it's made out of synthetics, um, is actually an agricultural product. And so the kind of um, gold standard for us internally is having relationships and traceability all the way at the farm level. And so that that way you really understand what the localized impact is from an environmental standpoint, from a human welfare standpoint, um, from an animal welfare standpoint as well. And so really for for us, that's where we try and, and have most of our supply chains traced back to. I would say that's that's true for the vast majority um, of our products, not not 100%, um, but that's really been our, our cornerstone. 
I think that's, um, you know, super interesting around material development, because I find that a lot of brands don't go far back enough um, at the beginning of the process in product creation. So, you know, I'd love to hear that. Do you use any other digital tools or digital solutions like RFID or anything to help track that product journey? So through the supply chain? Yeah. So we, we have not to date. And, you know, really the rationale for that is that the level of technological sophistication at various stages of the supply chain um, varies so dramatically. And so, you know, particularly when you're thinking about, you know, less RFID, but more, let's just say like blockchain, um, you know, bad data in, bad data out. And so, you know, we've largely, because you're really literally dealing from the farm level up and you're dealing with a diverse set of supply chains, um, we viewed that as today a relatively riskier proposition if we were to implement that. Um, we have chosen at the outset, in terms of the consumer-facing component of this, to use QR codes. And again, that's all about understanding um, user behavior and what the friction looks like. So we found that that was the easiest thing for the consumer to activate. We're fairly agnostic to the physical marker. Um, we're starting to layer in NFC tags on top of the um, QR codes. We think that's important. RFID, um, although it can be incredibly helpful for things like logistics and data, um, we've had some privacy concerns about, and so we've not used RFID. Okay, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about accessible luxury. Now, luxury is often associated with excess and ostentatiousness. How would you challenge that notion and what does sustainable luxury mean to you? So there's a great book that I really recommend by uh, an economist by the name of Mariana Mazzucato uh, called The Value of Everything. And I always uh, come back to this book when I have this conversation because it really articulates, you know, through the last 100, 200 years, how much we've come to associate value with price. And we're really trying to turn that on its head uh, in this in this instance by saying, what is what is luxury? Um, you know, luxury really for us connotes quality. And our biggest um, kind of message is that we need to start treating clothing as an asset again. So we think about luxury as kind of asset quality clothing. Now, saying the words asset quality clothing, like that's not particularly sexy <laughs> and it's a mouthful. Um, and so we use luxury with that language interchangeably. Um, but that also means a lot of things to different people. So really what we're talking about are like investable asset quality pieces that are going to last a very, very long time. And what we're trying to encourage through our business model is we're trying to encourage people to invest in those assets and know that they can also get some money back when they resell them. Um, you know, less so, of course, for a t-shirt than, than, you know, let's call it a, a jacket or outerwear or something of that nature. But that's really the way that we think about accessible luxury. Now, of course, the word, I think the flashpoint here is also the word accessible, right? So accessible means different things to different people. Um, in this instance, we're really kind of talking about it on a relative basis. So, you know, going from a $3,000 jacket to a $1,000 jacket is not going to be accessible to a lot of people, but it's more accessible. And most importantly, uh, by integrating re-commerce, you're also creating a further price tier um, that does allow for people to uh, both invest um, and uh, and also get again get uh, realize that 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 asset quality as well when they sell it. How do you relay some of this incredible messaging and um, just direction that the brand is taking and what you're doing from a sustainability standpoint to your customer? 
You know, it's so fascinating. You really need to meet people where they are. I think everyone has different levels of, you know, curiosity and and appetite and and time, frankly. Um, So we find that for our customer, sort of the hierarchy of purchase filters is quality first, design second, sustainability third. Uh, But that's that's on basically 10 different metrics and sustainability has risen. Um, So what we want to do is we want to make sure that that our customers understand and prospective customers understand that the information is available. Um, to the degree to which they are they are curious, and we have a very deep dive sustainability section. Um, and on the e-commerce side, uh, we've really taken a more proactive approach to continuously messaging um, that this is an option, that it's super easy, that it's super transparent, and that just takes repetition. You know, you kind of have to have that conversation over and over and over again. Uh, but it's one of uh, the things that we find that our customers are are super super excited about. You know, I was reading Glossy yesterday, actually. And um, Liz, your creative director, was um, speaking to Glossy about uh, marketing and storytelling and how a lot of that is overwhelming the clothes. You look at um, uh, Schiaparelli, the lion head dress, and of course, um, Copernic spray on dress. It kind of went viral. And of course, it overshadows a lot of other designers doing great things. How Can you elaborate on that a little bit? People come to us to, to build wardrobes that they love, you know, and and from from that standpoint, the most important thing I think is that the 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 line really represents what our customers need and are drawn to also emotionally, and then the storytelling is is really I think uh, in support of that. And again, it meets people where they are in terms of curiosity. I think what what Liz has really, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think you know for her one of the things that's so important is just that this is really difficult work, right? Like mm-hmm. to actually build your supply chains from the farm up and then design into it with all those constraints. That's you know not a small feat, and it's it's also you know involves making a lot of decisions for very important reasons that are not visible to the customer. And so we've really wanted to expose that work to the customer, um, in part because I think it it starts to bring value back to clothing. You know, when you're just seeing clothes in a rack, it's it's very hard to appreciate sort of all the incredible resources and work that go into them, um, and also really kind of reconnecting people back to the impact that uh, that all of these decisions actually have on the planet and on people. Yeah, I love the way you put that. The other thing that she said, which really resonated, was when you lose sight of um, the relationship between product and body and how people wear clothes, you lose sight of the customer, which brings me yes. to one of the things that you said on stage at the Retail Innovation Conference that blew my mind, you know, and it's on your website today that you have the, um, the size exchange program. Yes. I am like beaming over this because I am just such a big proponent, proponent in, you know, things like inclusivity and what's really happening with women's bodies and are we solving the problem um, around sizing. So I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about this program. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this this came from a very kind of personal experience of, of working with women. It was one of the one of the first and only events we could do before COVID hit, uh, right after we launched, and. It was fascinating to see these women shopping with real joy, getting into the stories behind it with real joy. And then at the point of purchase, there was this moment of anguish of what size do I buy? Is my body going to change? Am I going to lose the five pounds, the 10 pounds, the whatever? I thought, 
wow, like what if you could take that off the table, that psychological kind of lack of acceptance of who we are today? What if you could take that off the table? And, and that was where the size exchange uh, program came from. Is that, you know what, buy your size today. Whatever size you are, buy the size for your body. And then if your body changes, we got you. You know, we got you covered. And so, you know, we can't do it with absolutely everything. Um, but with our core product, that is our, you know, in particular, that the product that's most kind of size specific, our tailoring product, we allow our customer to change out the size um, within the first year. You know, we know that bodies change beyond the first year. And so, you know, this is going to be a program that's going to continue to live and breathe. And of course, our resale program uh, can allow for a lot of that, too. Um, but it's amazing the extent to which this has really resonated so deeply for women, because I think that in our culture, we are a always thinking in the future. We're always living in the future. And so many of us um, have a really hard time accepting the, the state of our bodies at any given moment in time. Do you think that we're leaving men out of this? When are you going to launch menswear? <laughs> I know that my husband would be super excited because I have felt all the materials in your stores and I am obsessed. So would you ever launch menswear? You know, I'll, I'll certainly never say never. We've talked about it extensively. We get a lot of inbounds um, uh, in terms of interest. However, uh, one of the things that is crucially important um, as an earlier stage business and as an entrepreneur is focus. And so focus, focus, focus. And I think fundamentally, you know, it's a completely different go-to-market strategy. I do think that there's a big opportunity in the market um, at a similar price point for men. Uh, we're certainly hearing the demand. So I would say it is loosely uh, on the roadmap on the basis of the enthusiasm we get. And we also, you know, we see people of all genders buying our product uh, already today, which is something that's that's super exciting. So, you know, we're very welcoming of everyone. Now, we've talked, you know, a little bit about sustainability. So let's let's kind of go back to that. Um, tell me a little bit about how the resale model has helped um, market your sustainability messaging? I mean, resale, I think, is one of the most, it's one of the most obvious places to start, right? So, you know, the fact that more than half of product goes to landfill within a year, um, you know, tells you how crucially important it is to create higher quality product and extend its life cycle. And so, you know, it, that, that's been like one of the, the best things that we can possibly do. I think it's also for consumers, it's, it's the most intuitive place to start, right? You don't have to have like a PhD in fashion supply yeah. chains to go shopping um, if you feel like you can buy something secondhand. Um, so I think it's, it's resonated for customers a lot because, again, like they, they have this pain point already. Like they are already super frustrated by the e-commerce process and they want to be a part of it. And so I think it's been a really great door into the sustainability conversation because it's already so well understood. And then there's kind of more that you can talk about um, from there. I mean, it's it's rare that you uh, talk to a lot of customers who know about, let's say, you know, regenerative farming and carbon sequestration and soil and mulesing and, you know, toxic cotton pesticides and what have you. So it's it's a really kind of beautiful entry point into the conversation and one that does uh, feel immediately relevant to, to most of our customers. Would you see that your resale model would be maybe take over some of your wholesale and DTC um, revenue drivers? Would you see resale growing almost to half? We, I mean, that would be amazing. That would be, we would love that. Uh, I mean, we've learned so much 
through the process that uh, we're actually going to be building some additional tech that I can't yet talk about <laughs> this year that we think is really going to accelerate re-commerce. So we're super excited. But yeah, I mean, we, we want it to be as high as it possibly can. Um, and perhaps unlike, you know, some existing businesses, you know, we want it to supplant the requirement to creating new product. Um, so that that would be a huge win. From a financial modeling standpoint, we've been fairly conservative just because every resale model is inherently supply supply side constrained. And as a young brand, uh, you know, you have natural limitations of how much product is already out in the market in the first place. Um, but we're big believers in this. And it's a, it's a huge, huge priority for us as a company. Last question on resale. <laughs> I'm getting too excited. I'm going through the website and I love the fact that you have um, a lot of recycled materials that you're using. Is there an opportunity where you'll receive product back, either it's returns or product that you can't resell? Would you break it down and use some of those material components in new product? It's really, there are some scale challenges to that. Um, and so we're often, uh, I shouldn't say often, uh, we are currently looking at partnerships specifically for things like t-shirts, which mm -hmm. are not particularly amenable to resale where we can actually use our t-shirts. Um, you know, you look at like our organic cotton Supima t-shirts, you know, super long staple, high quality materials. That's perfect feedstock for recycled cotton for other people's products. Um, it's difficult for us to do in a vertical way, it's difficult even for very large brands yeah. to do in a vertical way, um, just because of the scale of the amount of actual feedstock that you need to make a you know consistent new material out of it. But that's where I think you know pre-competitive partnerships are so so phenomenal, and we're having um, some of those conversations right now. Okay, well Vanessa, tell the audience where they can find you. Are you international? Tell us all the tea. With pleasure. So uh, direct to consumer, we are at anothertomorrow.co. We ship internationally, we pay duties, we currently have customers in 40 countries. Um, and so we are very much so international in that capacity. We've also become a much more omni-channel business over the last year. Um, so you can find us at Netaporte, at Matches, at Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus, and Saks Fifth Avenue um, online. So go for it there. And we are excited to be announcing um, some new partnerships for this fall as well in an international brick and mortar context. So more to come there. Amazing. All of my favorite retailers. And I definitely found a beautiful blazer on your resale site that I will definitely be purchasing. So, you know, next time I see you, I'll definitely be wearing some another tomorrow. Thank you so much for, for being on the show and for joining us in this conversation. Um, stay tuned, uh, Rethink Retail. We're going to be posting links across social of where to find you and, of course, where they can listen to this awesome conversation. My absolute pleasure. It's so good to reconnect. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.